The following message is entitled, The Defining Proof of Real Faith, Part 6. This message was given during the evening service on January 15, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. To get through the quick review, as I do every Sunday night, series number three is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, and that's where we're at right now in the series, precious than gold, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What a passage. A joyfully suffering salvation. In your note sheet, we've looked at verse 6, Roman numeral 1, Christians are to be joyful despite trials. In Roman numeral 2, Christians are to be joyful while suffering for Christ is proof of saving faith. We're looking at proof of saving faith, not producing saving faith. There's quite a difference between those two ideas. Suffering with joy does not produce saving faith. It is the proof of saving faith. Not the only proof, as I've mentioned repeatedly, but it is singular in verse 7 that the proof of your faith. So this is obviously singular by Peter and the Holy Spirit to show the massive importance of this single proof of saving faith. Under Roman numeral 2, we've seen that joy while suffering for Christ is the proof. We've looked at what that means and the nature of proven faith in verse 7, more precious than gold, which is perishable, is where we're at. We've seen that the proof, the, the test of legitimacy, that's what proof means in the Greek, the test of legitimacy of our faith is shown through verse 6. Verse 6 is one encompassing idea that is the proof. Great joy while suffering for the faith. In letter B, in your note sheet, in review, reviews down to the dotted line, the brown dotted line, the nature of proven faith as we've seen, it is more precious. Um, Precious means of greater price, more precious, extremely costly, more than anything. Uh, When it says in your text, more precious than gold, it is not saying then that since there are commodities, there are minerals, there are uh, types of wonderful valuable metals in this world that are more valuable than gold. It's not saying, well, they're more valuable. Uh, Titanium or something that could very well be more expensive than gold isn't the point here. So Peter didn't just choose gold and say, now if you find a metal that's more precious than gold, then that is better than proven faith. He's using the ultimate high commodity of value financially when he talks about gold not saying it is literally the most expensive metal on the planet, for it isn't, of course. It wasn't in those days, but now we've discovered some very rare items that could technically be more expensive than gold. So we could plug those into it and just say the same thing. In your note sheet, then, uh, proven faith is more precious. Letter B, under point number one, why proven faith is more valuable than gold. Gold perishes but proven faith does not. Letter C, joy in the midst of trials then is not just the mark of godly mature faith only, but all true faith. 
We don't want to make some mistakes here. One mistake that I've mentioned and taught you is to say that faith, professed faith, is more valuable than gold. No, it's proven faith. And a second mistake we can make is that only the godly have proven faith. Not true. It is all believers. As letter C points out, this is not just the mark of godly mature faith only, but all true faith. Whether newly saved, saved for years, or backslidden, all believers to some degree have proven faith, joy in the midst of trials. If I'm truly saved and I don't have joy in the midst of trials, then I have no assurance that my faith is legitimate. So, proven faith proves, 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 tests, makes legitimate our professions of faith. We finished off last Sunday night. Letter D, is proven faith really better than gold? Do we understand how valuable gold is? Was then more than today. I started to touch on that issue, and this is where we continue with letter E, new material tonight. The reason proven faith, two reasons why proven faith um, provides a, a, a sense or an understanding that it is more valuable, much more valuable than gold. Proven faith, as your note sheet says, provides two things which make it much more valuable than gold, and we'll get to those in a moment. This is not, as I've been saying repeatedly, an easy task to convince any of us in this room or anywhere else in a wealthy society like ours to convince anyone, even as believers, that this is true. In verse 7, more precious than gold. Everybody loves gold. Everybody. Even socialists. Socialism, as I've alluded to in the Sunday night series, the basic idea of classic socialism, also known as communism, but in its, in its pure form. Socialism operates on two fundamentals. Number one, the inherent goodness of man. Uh, man is good. He's not greedy. He, he's, he wants good things to happen for society, the socialist would say. And the socialist believes that we help society by redistribution of wealth. And you know how that works. It's done by brute force in communist countries. And so the communists take over all the wealthy billionaires and they say, we're going to wear our uniforms like communist Chinese premier used to wear this bland uniform. Now he dresses, you know, from Park Avenue, <laughs> suit and tie, because that's kind of changed with China. But anyways, the classic socialist, communist, or even socialist in democracy believes that uh, the key to success and happiness in life is the redistribution of wealth. So it's done by force in communist socialist countries and in democratic socialist, which is all of Western Europe, is socialistic. Classic socialism, Germany, Denmark, Great Britain. Uh, the idea is you redistribute the wealth in the U.S. as well through taxation. Amen? The richer you are, the less you will have. We're going to redistribute it to the common poor man. There was a skit back in the 70s by a British comedic group and it was mocking, the skit was mocking socialism, the redistribution of wealth. And it was a skit, it was a mocking skit that uh, included a little ditty about Robin Hood. So Robin Hood gets on his horse and he's standing in front of this feudal peasant's slum shack 
and the guy's in rags, and he starts, gets Robin Hood, gets on his horse, and he's going to help this guy out by forcibly redistributing wealth. So he goes riding through the woods, and the song would kick in in the skit, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his merry men, he takes from the rich and gives to the poor, we want more, we want more, we want more. So he goes riding over to the rich castle, knocks on the door with a sword drawn, Robin Hood does, and the poor chump, rich castle lord answers the door and he sticks the sword up by his nose and says, give me your money. And so Robin Hood fills the bag of money and candles, golden candelabras and all the rest. And he goes riding over to the feudal peasant, dumps it all inside the poor chump's uh, slum cabin that he's living in. He keeps going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to the same castle. Well, eventually over time, in the feudal peasant's house, it starts piling up. Right? Flowing out the front door. And then you look, he goes back to the rich castle baron, and all of a sudden he's sitting on the floor of his castle and he's got nothing. And he's in bare rags. Because Robin Hood just kept going back and forth, back and forth. So finally the music kicks in like this. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his merry men. He takes from the poor and gives to the rich. What a pip, what a pip. What a pip. If you don't know what a pip is, it's an ancient 1800s mocking term for a depressed moron. So Robin Hood basically is a depressed moron. He's just emptied out the castle, and now that guy's the poor guy, and he's taking from the poor and giving it to the rich. And here's this feudal peasant just loaded to the gills. So the last scene shows Robin Hood standing in front of the camera, scratching his head, and he says, My, this redistribution of wealth thing is more difficult than I realized. Total mockery of socialism. There's no socialism in verse 7. There's no idea of redistribution of gold. The success isn't evening the financial playing field. That's not what's going on in verse 7. Socialism is a joke because as I showed you from Ephesians 5 last Sunday night, man is wicked and he is greedy. And so back in the 30s and 40s, when the Russians and the Marxists were preaching socialism and the even distribution of wealth, you'd see the national leaders of Moscow driving luxury marias around. Luxury automobiles. You can't get away from it. Today in America, as I've told you before, it's called woke theology, W-O-K-E. And the only way a white, genetically racist white man in this country can ever make atonement for his generational sins of being generationally a racist is to give money to the black people. Redistribution of wealth. Salvation through economics. That's not what's going on in verse 7. The Bible mentions and tells us what we all know. We want gold. We want money. And it's a sin to want that. First Timothy 6 tells us that. The love of money is a horrible sin and evil. I was perplexed years ago when I was reading Warren Wearsby. One of his books on this concept is he, in his book, made a fundamental interpretive mistake of 1 Timothy 6. And for whatever perplexing reason, he came along and he said, money is evil. No, money is not evil. It's the love of money that is evil. Okay? So... Do you see in verse 7 that Peter in the Spirit is not saying, 
gold is evil and we need to redistribute it. There's no attack against gold in verse 7. Do you see an attack against it? Everyone here, wouldn't we like to get a black marker out tonight? And I could be a cult leader and I could order you to do something as the cult leader that I am. And I say, get your marker out and I want everyone to line up and across the auditorium, right on the wall, your income after taxes, yearly. So we all write the amounts down. Now, you'd hope you were the last one because you'd look at all the amounts and then you'd fake it and write something in between. We don't want anybody to know how much we make, do we? Anybody want to volunteer that? I thought some wise guy would say, not enough. That's how much I make, not enough. We want more. So let's understand something here right up front tonight. More precious than gold is not saying gold is bad. You're not good if you have less, and you're not evil if you have more. The Bible doesn't teach the redistribution of wealth. And the Bible is acknowledging by implication in verse 7 that gold is very valuable. It's precious, okay? So we don't have to walk around thinking, bad John, bad John, bad John. I'm sorry, God, for thinking that gold is, bad, is good. It's bad. Gold is bad. I should feel guilty. No. Whatever amount you have, there isn't a line you can cross between being righteous and unrighteous with the amount of gold that you have. You're not better if you have more and worse if you have less. You're not more righteous if you have less and better if you have more. Redistribution of wealth can't work. Robin Hood couldn't possibly figure it out because man is inherently greedy. We want more. The only way to get around an obsession with wealth is to have a higher priority not the condemnation of wealth as being precious, but a much higher priority that we believe is more valuable than the valuable commodity of gold. So number one in your note sheet under letter E, what makes proven faith, what does it provide that makes it more valuable than gold? And again, we're going to stop and not say because gold is bad. No. Number one, it provides great assurance of salvation. It provides great assurance of salvation, which is something all the gold in the world cannot provide. It provides great assurance of salvation, which is something all the gold in the world cannot provide. This is why I said last Sunday night that money can never be a determiner of God's will for your lives. You can't assess what God's will is by praying for some financial situation to occur. And then if it does, you know you're in God's will. And if it doesn't, you're out of God's will. Oh, I've been taken to task by that many times over the years. Because it sounds so righteous. And it goes like this. Lord, give me that raise. And if I get it, I know I'm in God's will. Really? Sitting in the car dealership. 
Lord, they're cooking the books and coming up with the figures for this new car out here for us, for me. And praying quietly now, Lord. If you want me to buy this luxury Denali out here, I ask, Lord Jesus, may they approve the loan. Our salesman comes out. Good news. Loan is approved. They look at the spouse. Praise Jesus. This shows we're saved. <laughs> Christians that do this. Come on, you know that. You may have done it too. We don't pay, pray for impoverishment. Lord, I pray that this week my boss would tell me my salary's cut in half. Then I'll know that I'm in God's will. Do you see the folly of praying for money to determine God's will? I'm not saying that if you're busted and poor and have no money, not because you've blown it on stuff and you have no way to pay for your bills. There's nothing wrong with asking God to help you. If you don't have money, some of you are very poor and you have a hard time paying your bills. And so you pray that God would meet your needs as he sees fit to pay bills. That's different. That's different than assuming an increase of money proves that you're saved. Do you understand the difference there? Money increase does not prove assurance. It doesn't prove you're saved. It doesn't prove you're in God's will. And by the way, you could be backslidden. God could be very merciful to you. You could be backslidden. And, and you've not been very good with money. And you've been wasting it on things you shouldn't have. And so you say, God, I've been a fool with finances. And I can't pay my mortgage or my rent. Have mercy on me. And, and somehow bring some money in for it. And I admit I've been wrong. And God can very mercifully give you money. Some miraculous way. That doesn't mean you're godly. It just means he's merciful. Anything that can happen to an unbeliever financially that can happen to you and I shows that money issues don't prove God's will. What proves that we're saved in verse 7? Proven faith. And it provides great assurance. Proven faith alone. Please write it under number one. Proven faith alone is the basis for which we determine we are saved. Erase any financial considerations that you're using, if you are, I trust you aren't, anything money-wise that you're using to convince yourself that you're a true believer and that God is working. Don't look for money as the proof because God could very well want an extremely godly person to be totally busted financially. Right? We could say the same with health. See, this is the great snare of charismatic health and wealth prosperity doctrine, which is heresy. God wants you healthy and he wants you wealthy. And so you pray that God will heal you, and if God doesn't, it shows you're not a believer. You could be a very sick, physically sick individual and be godly, and you could be a very healthy individual and be going to hell. You can't use your health as a determiner of whether you're in God's will or not. Now, just a little caveat in regards to that. If you have unusual sickness in your life, it's always wise to take that before the Lord because we know from the last chapter of James that a true believer who is in rebellion, God will start to strike down physically. 
So sickness could very well be a proof of rebellion or a evidence of it. So we want to pray. But then if you are dealing with sin and you're repenting and you're reading your Bible, you don't want to then say, well, even though I'm seeking your will and I pray to you and I'm repenting and yet I still have these terrible physical problems, should I assume, God, that this is your chastisement upon me? He doesn't chastise weak, failing Christians who repent. He chastises rebels. Rebels who can't be bothered getting right with God. So James talks about the rebel. and They're in such sin that even the elders in James 5 have to come and confront the individual. That's the type of person that God would chastise through the physical issues of life. So physical issues of life where you're deprived if you're in rebellion, that's a warning sign that God's chastising. But never, never could anyone say as a believer an increase of wealth to any degree or possessions means that God is blessing me. I've heard that so many times. I've been blessed with wealth. You know, many times it's a satanic curse. Why don't we ever say we're blessed with destitution? I was blessed by getting unfairly fired from my job because it stripped me of self-sufficiency, and now I'm trusting in the Lord. I was humiliated when I didn't get the promotion, and that humility that is forced upon me is such a great spiritual blessing. We don't talk like that. We give testimony in churches. God has blessed me financially, blessed me. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now bless me like you blessed him. No, no assurance there. Proven faith, proven faith is the only thing that gives great assurance of salvation. We only pray for more money, not less, yet God's will may many times be a context of getting less money. It only makes sense that the more you're going to witness for Jesus Christ, the more you're going to get hammered by family, by circumstances, by neighbors, by being on the job and getting demoted. If we're ever going to make any case concerning finding God's money, God's will through money, it's going to probably be in this day and age that you could more test yourself concerning God's will with money when you're stripped of it for standing for Christ. Not getting it. Hard lesson to sell. Number two, proven faith provides a fortress against spiritual collapse. A fortress against spiritual collapse. No matter how severe one suffers, one will have joy. Proven faith is a fortress against spiritual collapse. For no matter how severe one suffers, one will have joy. The suffering does not determine your joy or lack thereof. Your legitimacy of your faith determines the joy. Please write that under number two. The suffering can't rob you of joy. It only tests your faith and you suffering won't strip you of joy it will only legitimize or delegitimize your faith a true believer can't lose his salvation but unproven faith wrecks spirituality for the rebel believer it just wrecks it and that's why he continues down here which we'll get to at some other sunday but after more precious than gold and we're still got to talk about gold I want to really talk about gold, yeah. Um, he goes down here in verse 7, tested by fire, found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who's doing the praising and honoring and glorifying at the revelation of Jesus Christ? That's the believer who's tested and comes through. So proven faith not only legitimizes, number one, and gives us assurance, 
but it fortresses us to keep growing. See, if suffering for the faith can't wreck me and I have joy despite suffering, what can rob me of walking with Christ? Nothing. So he goes on in verse 8, though you haven't seen him, you love him. You see, this is, this is growing love. Though you do not see him now, you believe. Growing faith. Greatly rejoice. Faith, love, joy. Joy inexpressible, full of glory. And then you finish off your faith in verse 9. You obtain it. Only the proven faith believer in verse 7 ends up in verse 9. This is a fortress that leads to continuous growing spiritual maturity and stability. No matter what happens to me, no matter how I suffer for the faith, I'm legitimately a believer when the Spirit gives me joy in the midst of such suffering. There's no room for joy in the mind of a loss of assurance believer. There's no room for joy in the mind of a loss of assurance believer. You've seen it before. Let me show you again. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 is what happens to a believer who's spiritually wrecked. If we live for money, this is what will happen to us. That's rebellion. Hebrews 10, you want to wreck your salvation assurance, just live for money and things. Can't possibly have joy in that context. So if we're sinning willfully, verse 26 of Hebrews 10, that's rebellion. That's the, that's the def, def, definition of rebelling, is a believer who sins willfully. You, do you know what it means to sin willfully? And this is continuous sinning willfully. Sinning willfully means... I know what your word says, and I know what I'm supposed to do, and I refuse to do it. This is not an unbeliever. This is a rebel believer. He says, if we go on sinning, if, for if, logical connectives grammar would call them, for if, connecting to verse 25, going all the way back up, verse 22 let us draw near verse 23 let us hold fast verse 24 let us consider verse 25 we believers not forsaking our own assembling together and all the more as you believers see the day drawing near for if we same context the rebel believer has no joy they're wrecked in verse 27 with a terrifying expectation of judgment. They lose their assurance of salvation. That's called holy terror. Holy terror is when the Spirit of God strips your assurance in rebellion so that you are terrorized, wondering if you're going to hell or not, not knowing whether you're really saved. How can anyone who's in rebellion in verse 27 ever expect that they'll have joy? So what robs joy and replaces it with terror in verse 27? Willful sinning. Gold has nothing to do with this. You can have a house full of gold, like the feudal peasant in that British comedy skit, just piled up in your house full of gold. How is that going to fix a terrifying expectation of judgment? It doesn't. It is such utter folly, not only for unsaved man, to live for things of this world, but how doubly tragic for Christians to be materialistic and live for the things of this world when it can't possibly help us. Holy terror is brutal. It is moral, spiritual, emotional devastation. And it is for the rebel believer who lives for self 
And when you live for self, you, you will eventually make an appointment back in 1 Peter 1.7 to put gold first. We're very subtle about this. I don't worship gold. I don't love money. But we look at the various decisions we make as Christians, subtle decisions to compromise God's will for our lives for the sake of financial security. You do know I trust, dear believers, that there is no such thing on this planet as financial security. Not without walking with Christ. He's the one that controls our lives. You have no security without Christ, and neither do I. You have no job security without Christ. He's the one that determines what goes on in our lives. Security is a spiritual commodity. It cannot be earned through money. Why do we put so much stock and importance in finances? There are many barometers that tell us the American church is so sold out to money. One of them is the percentage, Barna surveys have shown this for the last 20 to 30 years, the percentage of giving for believers to their local Bible-believing churches is just going down, 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 while their wealth and finances continue to rise, uh, maybe not in comparison to inflation in this country, but rising in comparison to the rest of the world. And you look at the percentage of giving, it's not much different in fundamental Bible-believing churches by believers as it is from Catholics. One, 1 1.5% of finances given. And, and we're very good at making excuses for this. Well, if I had more, I'd give more. Or that classic statement of the rebel, Lord, you know, dot, 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 whatever that means. You know, basically, I can't, can't give. Next year I will. This isn't a pitch for money. I'm just showing that many times money can reveal who we really are. So this continuous progression of spiritual growth in verses 7 to 9 isn't triggered by having more money. It's triggered by proven faith. That is the hinge that swings the door on the rest of this text. Proven faith. That's what's tested by fire in verse 7. That's what's found to result in praise. That's what produces the love of verse 8, the growing faith of verse 8. And that's what obtains the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It confirms that. Proven faith. Far more valuable than gold. This is almost laughable that Peter has to tell us this. In a sense, we're all kindergarten children, and Peter's the teacher. And he's talking way down to us while we sit on the rug in the kindergarten room. And in verse 7, he goes, Now, 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 little children, proven faith is more precious than gold. And we look up into the eyes of Peter the Apostle and the Lord, and we go, No. Do we really need to be told this in verse 7? Isn't that sad? Gold. Wonderful, joyful assurance of salvation. Do I have time to think about this one? 
If ever there was a verse in the New Testament where the apostles are dumbing it down for us, it's verse 7. More precious than gold. Well, I believe that. Oh, yeah, do you? Do I? Eh, I'm not so sure. Let's continue on. Perishable. Perishing. Passive participle. Made to be continuously perishing. So it says more precious than gold, which is perishable. Gold is continuously in a process of perishing. Apolimi, from apa, away. Alimi, to destroy. This, this is Apollyon, the god of death and destruction. This has got the same root. Apolimi is perishing. The god of death and destruction is Apollyon, the angel of destruction, Satan. So it's saying gold is in a process of being fully destroyed. When? When does all the gold disappear off this planet and get destroyed? When God destroys the world, right? It's going to violently perish. Apollomy, the word perishable there, made from an outside force making it be destroyed. That's the divine force. The reason it's passive, which is made to be perishable. An outside force is causing it to perish. That's God. All that we value on this planet is going to be gone. Everything. Burned up with fire. Apollomy means violent perishing, right under letter F. Violent perishing. It implies, just like the god of destruction, Apollyon, the false god, obviously, the demonic force in Revelation, Apollyon, total destruction. It's going to be totally destroyed. Some translations say perishing refers to canceling out. It includes the idea of ruin. The ruination includes the idea of turning everything that we consider purposeful into having no point or purpose whatsoever. Ruination is when a rich man is buried in the ground. That's ruination. The tragedy of having wealth and living for it, then dying. What ruination? Oh, how terrible if we Christians are in that type of camp. What are we living for? So it is not that gold perishes when tried by fire here in verse 7. Fire actually purifies gold. Rather, gold itself will never last for eternity. All gold will perish when the planet is destroyed by fire. So this perishing, under letter F, Peter's alluding to future judgment of all the physical wealth of this planet. And because the fire of judgment will destroy gold, and the fire of judgment will not destroy proven faith, proven faith is more precious than gold. That is why proven faith is eternally more valuable than gold. Only a godly believer who's living for eternity will value proven faith. But all true believers will prove faith at some time, even if they're in rebellion, they'll be chastised back to walking with their Lord. A permanent type of behavior that I don't care about being joyful in the midst of, in the midst of judgment is an evidence that one is not truly saved. False believers can never accept this, middle of verse 7. Rebellious believers cannot accept this. 
Sadly, many will go to their grave and have gone to their grave in death. I've talked to more than a few godless professed believers on their deathbeds. All they live for means nothing when they're dying. And they realize, some of them realize, how they wasted their lives. I've never seen a carnal believer smiling on his deathbed. I've seen tears flow by carnal believers who wasted their lives. Profound, hopeless regret that it's too late to fix. The dying Christian rebel realizes he lived his life for nothing. I don't want to be that person. I hope and trust you don't either. What does it mean to live for nothing? People who live for nothing are living for something. They're living for anything other than Christ first. That's living for nothing. To live for nothing as a believer is to live for anything other than his will for our lives first. Nothing is to come ahead of living for Christ because all of it is perishable. On the back side, let's write some things down that will perish. And to live for any of these things is to live for nothing. If any of these come first, we're living for nothing. While gold, that's the given here in this text, money, certainly. Perishing. How about education? Will that perish? Yeah. How about job? Money in the bank, that goes with gold. You want to be set for retirement, right? Get a little afraid when you think, you, do I have enough for retirement? We're retiring to heaven. Okay, so... Not quite sure how that one works out. Yeah, the bank account's going to disappear. Perishable. Nice place to live. <laughs> they were, we had the kids over and they were, they'd like to check houses on the east side. I don't know why. I was hoping maybe they were checking them out on their phones in case they wanted to move back here. But uh, I guess, I guess the one across the street from, on Avenue F from us, down a little ways, two stories high house, Going for $240,000. I said, wow. Then they handed me one of their phones and you can look at all the rooms. Wow, nice. Closest one after that is one for 210000 on Avenue G on the corner. Hmm. So I said, uh, how much is the parsonage going for? Well, it's not listed. Because no one ever had a mortgage on it. But Dad, the one to your south is going for 160 and the one to the north, what was it? Louise? Louise? I don't know. 180? 240? You don't want your house being the richest one on the block. They'll never get that. Never get 240 for that house. It's got an extension they built on it. Pool. It's got a three-car garage, and if you look at it, it's got Harley-Davidson's in there. Don't want to have the richest house on the block. People aren't going to buy it for that price. Will any of this matter a thousand years from now? So, nice place to live. Perishing. How about things? Perishing. How about entertainment? 
perishing. How about power? Perishing. Are you writing these down? This is living for nothing. Gold, education, job, savings account, retirement, nice place to live, things, entertainment, power, recognition, fame. Perishing. The guy who in Beverly Hills went down to get his mail a couple of years ago. I've talked about this before. Scottish guy that played Chekhov in the new Star Trek series of movies. Walks down past his luxury SUV, goes to the Iron Gates to get his mail in his early 30s. Somehow there was a factory defect in the braking system of his luxury $100,000 SUV and it released as he's standing in front of it, rolls down, crushes him up against the gates of his highly secure Beverly Hills home as a millionaire and he died. And ends up in hell. And what did it all mean to him? When we go past this stuff and move our vision towards when we're old or die, we start to lose any desire for these things. Because time is running out. Things, entertainment, power, recognition, family. Oh, there's a snare for many Christians. Christ repeatedly condemned individuals who claim to be believers who put Family first. That is not righteous. That is godless. We're to leave father and mother, sister and brother, and go into all the world and preach the gospel. Family is not to come first. Loved ones are not to come first. Living for any of these things is living for nothing. Absolutely nothing. So in conclusion this evening, Application, and we'll finish with this, a series of questions, answer to yourself. Which do you think wins the day with most believers, proven faith or wealth? The answer is found by observing the actions of professed believers. That's how it's found. Look at your actions, write that in the application. Look at your actions, not your words, your actions. What are your values? What are the things you obsess over? It can be as simple as I watch, entertain myself with TV an hour to a day, but I read my Bible five minutes. What do your actions show? What would that person be living for? The Bible or entertainment? Entertainment. So let's answer some questions in conclusion. Number one, do believers handle suffering better and better in our world today? No. Is depression and medicating for life's trials growing among professed believers? Yes. So we can't handle suffering because we're living for the world and we don't want suffering. Next, do believers spend massive amount of time to earn wealth? Yeah. To buy things? To live in nicer areas? Or are they spending more time serving sacrificially with their gifts? Or they don't simply have time because they have to earn all this? Do believers, number three, pray, pay, pray more for physical issues than spiritual issues in our churches? Yeah. Number four, do more believers witness and suffer for it or avoid witnessing in order to keep some earthly thing intact like job, money, and family? I'd say 
based on that list of questions, proven faith, sadly, loses the day. Wealth wins. Gold is the test of our faith. The more of it I have, the happier I am. The more things of this world that come into my life, the more I find peace. Until we're in the ICU, and very little time remains. And with shock, we realized we spent our lives seeking fool's gold to the utter despair of hopelessness, knowing none of it's doing us any good when we're dying. We walk out of here, dear God, and we can quickly erase this convicting sermon or we can yield to its agony. It's never too late to turn our minds around, Lord. Most in this room, we could say we have more years behind us, far more than are ahead of us. What do we live for? What are we living for? What occupies so much of our thinking and time? If you were standing right here tonight in front of this TV and we lined up in single file and came in front of you and you looked into our eyes and you asked us not to remove our gaze from your eyes and we look up into your eyes, Jesus, as the eternal God of the universe who knows our lives and our thoughts, if you asked us as we stood two feet from your face, John, are you living for gold and the things of this world or living first for me? Could we say yes without blinking, Lord? Could we firmly say that our affirmation of yes is proven by our lives? Or would we with shame have to lower our gaze and say as Peter did in the midst of his weakness and carnality when asked if he loved Jesus, Lord, you know all things. Oh, how few of us could look you right in the eye and say, though I have been and still am a horrible sinner living under the grace and mercy of the cross, I can say before you, Lord Jesus, that my life's ambition and goal is not money, job, retirement, things, or family. It has been to sacrificially dedicate and give my life to you and suffering greatly for it with joy. Oh, Lord, that we could all truthfully say that. Revive us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.